My name is August McLaughlin, and I've been contemplating girl boners for years. It's time for Girl Boner Radio with August McLaughlin, a spicy blend of personal stories, in-depth reporting, and inspiration. Girl Boner is where good girls go for sexual empowerment. Listen in as August McLaughlin, award-winning health and sexuality writer, explores female sexual pleasure like no one else. She's the big sister-slash-girlfriend you've always wanted, and she loves to talk sex, only on Global Voice Broadcasting. Therefore, if we want to shape our own destiny, we must unravel what we have been taught. Lauren Brim, The New Rules of Sex. Powerful words, right? Imagine if we applied them to our sex lives and our relationships with ourselves and with others. Welcome back to Girl Boner Radio, everyone. I'm your host, August McLaughlin, and I am thrilled to have Lauren here in the studio with me today. Lauren isn't only an author, but a sexual and spiritual coach for women who has worked in the general healing arts for almost 10 years, both as a teacher and practitioner across North America, Europe, and Africa. She was studying to be a midwife when she began having her own reproductive challenges back in 2012, which prompted her to create healthnow.am to provide higher quality sex education for women. She's passionate about supporting women's health and sexuality through awareness, honesty, and education, and working with clients across six continents. Thank you so much for being here, Lauren. Yes, thanks for having me. I'm really enjoying your book. I love how candid and open you are, and you weave a lot of personal experience with history, and you really dig deep into these beliefs we have about ourselves and our sexuality in so many ways. And the very beginning, you start out with a story about your own experience in Paris Mm -hmm. when you were in that mindset of like, didn't you even have a coach? Like you were trying to find your husband. Yes. I was trying to get married and end the the cycle of just dating and dating and heartbreak and dating. And I was really like, I'm going to focus on this. And I spent $10,000 on a relationship coach and was doing morning and evening hypnosis and meditation. And I was I was really focused at the time on on finding my partner. And, and that's what uh, drove me to write the book, The New Rules of Sex. Because it didn't go as planned. Yes, it did not go as planned. And I discovered a lot of things in that process because I was really reaching out to understand. So I was listening to so many authors and speakers about sexuality and relationships and so much of it just didn't agree with me and didn't resonate with me. And I found it to be so shaming and and I was sort of horrified. And, and I, so I asked myself the question, well, what is really true about sexuality? Is it really true that if you, you know, do these things or you're sleeping with your ex, you're not going to meet your soulmate or what, you know, all of these stories they tell you. And so I, I set out to re-educate myself about sexuality and relationships. And like you, like you said, shape my own destiny. And what was the first step that you took proactively to start addressing those myths? Um, Well, research, really. I mean, there was a lot of research that went into that book. I'd say the first um, six to eight months was just research, reading, looking up. uh, You know, it's sort of like once you start in, you just go really deep, you know. And, And I think I was also reading Christopher Ryan's Sex at Dawn. There were a lot of things that were helping me look to other cultures and their perceptions around sexuality that really helped me. And I think getting out of my own country and my own culture and being in another culture, it helps you step back and say, okay, what do I really believe versus what have I been conditioned and brought up to believe is true? 
Yeah, absolutely. You write that our sexuality has been regulated by the government and legislation for thousands of years. Yes. Which is really powerful. And then you share the example of sodomy, which I thought was so interesting because the definition is not quite or mm. or limited to what we believe, right? Yes. I correct people on this all the time. They think that sodomy is a man having anal sex with another man, but they don't realize that we're all committing sodomy because sodomy is any form of sex that doesn't lead to procreation. So it's all forms of sex outside penile vaginal sex. And I think this is so important because when we get into an us versus them or me versus the other, we sort of put ourselves in opposite camps and make our and, and then we shame the other. Oh, you're having gay sex. They're committing sodomy. It's this evil thing. No, you're committing sodomy every time your boyfriend goes down on you or every time you finger someone instead of having penile vaginal sex. They're um, even a nipple orgasm would be would be under the context of sodomy. It's not penile vaginal pleasure that could potentially make a baby. So I think when we when we really understand what that is, it just puts us all in the same. We're all sexual creatures. Period. Yes. Speaking of which, you talk a lot about gender stereotypes, which the whole time I'm like cheering and screaming because I relate to your frustration that you were mm. questioning all these things. Like if this is true there's all these things wrong with me, first of all, you know, it's mm -hmm. so shaming, especially around women, I think, or any, you know, also trans people, people who don't fall into like the stereotypical, quote unquote, good and clean sex, mm -hmm. you know, that you're not mm -hmm. having the sodomy. Um, so when it comes to women's sexuality, what's, mm. what's one big takeaway that you hope that everybody gets from your book? Well, just how sexual women are. You know, that I'd say if I sum up my whole message and I have a new website out, laurenbrem.com, and my biggest message is just women are sexual. We're so sexual. And because our culture believed that women weren't sexual, there, there were textbooks issued in the 1800s and early 1900s by medical doctors, you know, however you want to use that term, that were stating that women weren't sexual. They had no pleasure from sex. I mean, this is the history, the background that we're coming from, that our grandparents were raised with, that, you know, it, it got cleaned up a bit, the you know, improved a bit the education, but not that much for our parents. And, and so as women, I think we really have to take this stand for ourselves to say, I am sexual, I have pleasure to discover where that pleasure comes from, and to put ourselves up equal with men. To me, this is a big part of the feminist movement and equality is to say, you have sexual pleasure, I have sexual pleasure, you have a boner, I have a boner. Um, we're, we're equal. They're just, they're just different. <laughs> I can resist. Yes, exactly. And you really make the point so well that it's about individuality. Mm -hmm. You know, that a man could have a lower sex drive, a woman could have a lower sex drive. It, you know, yeah. it can change throughout our lives. And, yes. and that we have, you know, like you said, that equality is, is so important. And it's been a source of control over women mm -hmm. to say, no, you can't be sexual. You're you're hysterical. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, there's something wrong with you. And we're the ones who get the pleasure and using it as a as yeah. that means. Do you see that still happening? Yes. And I also I see it as a coping method as well. When you're not allowed to have sex till marriage and when sex leads to a baby every time. And yes, when when you're you can't have a voice in sex to say, ow, that hurts or I don't like that position or I want to be on top. Or if you don't have that, the way you cope is to shut down your sexuality to uh, to shut down pleasure, feeling sensation. So yes, women, you know, this is something we're still working on. I work with clients all the time that are having these problems that I believe 
have come about from generations of coping in this way. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And I really believe, and there's also science to show that what we believe about sexuality and our own sexuality mm-hmm. is self-fulfilling. Yes. And that is one of the most powerful, if you think about that, if you believe these statistics that get bounced around through the media that don't have any basis. Like there'll be one tiny study of three people and they say that 90% of women don't orgasm, for example. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's an extreme example, but uh, it gets bounced around. And if that's what you learn, you may never climax or you may not realize that you're turned on. You may stifle that part of you. Mm -hmm. And it's it's so powerful. It's true. Some people are going to just naturally find things. Some women are going to have spontaneous female ejaculation or they're just for me finding my orgasm at a young age was really easy. I don't know why it just was. And and then I masturbated for years and really, you know, developed that understanding of my fantasies and my body. And and that journey still continues. But yes, a lot of men and women need someone to say this happened for me and then it happens for them. And we see this in every other area of our life. I always give the example of I met someone that said, I moved to Europe and I it planted the seed. And I said, oh, I can do that. I can just move to Europe. And I did. And I had an amazing adventure. But I would never, until you meet someone that sort of gives you permission in a way to cross over, you know, that is what we need with sexuality. That's why we need the big sister. In Africa, when a woman gets married, they have a kitchen party in in Zambia, the country I was in. And the women not only bring her things for her kitchen, but they show her the movements of sex. They show her how to get pleasure. They educate her. They dance. They're really sexual. And so the woman goes into the sexual relationship relationship empowered and educated and given permission to really enjoy it. Mm. I think that's so fabulous. That's beautiful. Yeah. Imagine what our culture would be. Yeah. Instead, we we're, were like taught. giggling and shy and, you know, looking yeah. at lingerie. But so many women wear this gorgeous lingerie and look really sexual. And I've seen some of those women are the least sexually sort of able and confident and, mm-hmm. and lacking pleasure and all of that. Yeah. I, I've often said that because I worked as a model for many years mm-hmm. and I have said that I was never the sexuality I was selling because Mm. I was the least sexual. I was the least – I couldn't have a girl boner. I couldn't have pleasure because Mm. I was not – taking care of myself. And I was very insecure for for much of that time. You know, I found the work empowering in some ways, but not sexually. Mm. And yet you're seducing cameras. And, Isn't that interesting? Yeah, yeah. And the lingerie models that I would meet, I'm sure some of them were, you know, I can't generalize and say they all were struggling. But for the most part, I didn't meet a lot of like super secure, sexually confident, know their bodies, you know, people because they're kids for mm-hmm. one thing, like 19 years old. Yeah, yeah, you know? exactly. Your sexuality. I mean, I was just telling some women at a over wine the other day about their clitoris and the fact that it keeps growing and growing and growing throughout your whole life. And they, their eyes were open. They're like, oh, is that why sex keeps getting better? I said, yes. You know, uh, and because yeah. a woman was talking about, she's like, why is sex so much better in, in my 30s and my 20s? And I said, well, part of, you know, there's a lot of a reasons, lot of factors, but part yeah. of it is that you're, and so many people think the clitoris is just the external portion, but button. of course, yes, it's inside. There's the cura, the legs, the vestibular bulbs, our whole insides are engorged with blood and it just keeps growing more and more sensitive and powerful. So it's um, an amazing journey we're on as women. Absolutely. That is so powerful. I love that you mentioned finding your own solo play and masturbation and orgasm Mm -hmm. young. Were you fed any messages of don't do that before then? Did you have the freedom? Well, 
it's interesting. I my parents must have that must be something they did right with sexuality because you know there was all of this Christianity that was influencing me in a, in a really difficult way. But I think one of the gifts my parents gave me, and I don't remember my mother giving me permission to masturbate till I was twelve or thirteen, and I'd already been doing it for quite some time. But she gave so, you permission? Yeah, she said, you know, that masturbation thing, like it's it's okay or it's good or something like that. So That's I imagine awesome. I must have gotten that message unconsciously from her when I was younger. So I was free to just go into my bedroom and have that time with myself. So that I really thank my parents for. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. And did you find that as you learned more about the truth behind these myths, that your own relationship with your sexuality and your capacity for pleasure changed? Yes, absolutely. It's actually been one of the most surprising things because I think I used to think, oh, I've, I've, I found all the orgasms. I really enjoy sex in these ways. And to have sex keep opening up in new ways for me and discovering new places internally or or externally that I can be stimulated and just new levels of pleasure. And it's just been an amazing journey. And a lot of it has come from the education. And I think especially if you're with just one partner, you need to have education because I was blessed in that I had many partners and all those partners, they taught me things and you have different experience, different penises feel different, different fingers, different mouths. They it's amazing. They can use them in almost the same way. And just it feels so different, the energetic yeah. sort of connection of those two beings or, or totally. more. So yeah, if you don't have multiple partners, you need education to open your, your mind, your energetics, your body to, to new experiences. Beautiful. Beautiful. We were talking a little bit earlier about pornography. Mm. And we received a question from a listener. I'd love to hear your perspective too. Uh, and it's such an important question. I feel that a lot of the questions I get when I go and speak for a women's group, for example, uh, if there's a lot of college-age students, they ask me about pornography, either their own use or their partner's use. And it's one of those not terribly talked about things, even though it's so mm -hmm. prevalent. Yeah. So I love that Sarah wrote this because I think she's really brave. She said, my boyfriend can't seem to get or stay hard without watching porn and gets defensive when we talk about it. He basically says it's no big deal. Everyone's doing, etc. I don't want to make love only with porn on. Every once in a while, fine. But every time? Plus, I'm worried about him. What should I do, Sarah? I asked uh, Dr. Megan Fleming, our resident sex expert, to weigh in on this and and here's what she had to say. Sarah, I can't thank you enough for this question and really appreciate it. Um, sort of where to begin. Uh, I guess the first thing I'd like to say is, you know, trust your own gut and instinct. Uh, the fact that your boyfriend's even getting defensive, it's sort of showing you that he's not sort of open and curious because regardless in a sense of where he's coming from, he's not in a sense making room for your experience or, you know, as John Gottman, the famous marital research would say, he's not sort of open to influence. Um, you know, I'm, listen, I'm totally pro porn, but when porn impacts your sexual functioning or your desire, then I think it, it's problematic. And it's one thing I, I often say, you know, we have tools in our toolbox. So, hey, fantastic. If you and your partner enjoy porn from time to time, great. And that could be true of a vibrator or any sex toy. But if you feel like you need it and you can't get aroused without it, to me, that should be sort of a red flag of like, 
you know, huh, what, what's happening here? And, you know, there's a lot of research out there um, that, you know, talks about the impacts of porn. Um, you know, one website to look at is your brain on porn. Um, but to me, it's to help him recognize that, you know, when we're on our own and we're watching porn, if you know you get what you want when you want it, and often you're clicking through multiple images or maybe even have multiple screens up at one time. And that's just not how real life works. Real life is much slower. And so the thing with porn is that, you know, it, it definitely could be your personal turn on and you get what you want, as I said, when you want it, but it's not about other, their pleasure. It's not about the connection. And listen, it, it, to me, the defining characteristic here is he's not able to get or stay hard without it. And I would say to somebody, you know, this is also true of masturbation style. Sometimes we call it idiosyncratic masturbation style. So if they're using, you know, too much pressure or force or focusing on the frenulum, uh, you know, sort of the tip of their penis where there's most sensation, you know what, if your vagina can't duplicate that sensation and they've, if you think about uh, conditioning, classical conditioning and uh, operant stimulus response, you know, somebody's sort of teaching their body to be responsive in a certain situation or circumstance. And if you can't duplicate that just showing up or, or your vagina can't create that kind of pressure tension, then it's definitely something to be looked at. And I've worked with a lot of these guys, whether it's porn or their masturbation style, and it really is about taking a break. Um, and what would that mean for your boyfriend? Can he even imagine it? Can he imagine going 30 days, 60 days? Because the, the good news here is that the body is incredibly, uh, responsive and receptive to, uh, you know, sort of learning new tricks and to reestablish um, sort of a threshold for arousal that isn't at its current sort of tipping point. And, you know, I think that it's a huge opportunity to say, I'm sort of out of words, like, help me understand why you think it's no big deal or everyone's doing it. Because guess what? Sure, everyone watches porn, but not everyone in a sense, quote unquote, needs porn to get aroused or to get hard or to have sex with their girlfriend or their wife. And that's the part it seems like he's kind of, you know, dismissing and not wanting to look at. And so maybe, you know, you can invite him to say, even if you think it's no big deal, guess what? It is for me. And knowing that it is for me, what can we do or how can we look at this together as a couple? Hopefully that will give you an opportunity to enter into a new conversation because it's not about talking him out of his perspective. It's about saying how and why it's not working for you. And can he make room for your perspective and try on new or different things that might be beneficial to both of you into the relationship? You know, I think that the body, the brain is our biggest sex organ, but the bodies are uh, skin in particular is our biggest organ. And so it's like, you know, typically when people are watching porn, it's very um, genital, you know, sort of going for the gold. It's very focused on performance and orgasm. And when it comes to arousal, it's so much of the mental as well as like the softer, you know, behind the neck, the lower back, the inner thigh, like really creating uh, a sensitivity to sort of those erogenous zones. And it feels like there's a huge opportunity for exploration um, if your boyfriend is willing to sort of think out of the box and look at this with you and try on new things together. As always, want to hear how it goes. Love to get your experience and feedback.
Thank you so much, Dr. Megan. I love what she had to say. And I love that she mentioned your brain on porn.com because it's a wonderful resource. It has a lot of research findings about porn and how it can affect the brain in some people. And it was actually brought to light to me by Gabe Deem, who's been on the show before. Shout out to Gabe. He's amazing. He's an activist for Better Sex Ed, a trainer, a mentor, and a public speaker who has uh, gone through sexual dysfunction related to porn himself and now really advocates. And is just a wonderful, wonderful person. So check out that website um, and, and Gabe's work. He's got a lot of great content there. Anything that you would add, Lauren? Yeah, I think that if her partner is willing to go on this journey to discover sex between the two of them without porn, it needs to start with uh, two things. A re- he needs to start to rewire himself through his masturbation and self-pleasuring practices. So starting to discover what fantasies in his mind turn him on. Um, men often just like women, they need one thing that really excites them. And then there's a story in your mind or there's a, you know, you you exist in that fantasy and the arousal, you know, develops and, and into orgasm. Um, and the second thing that that I think is that they need to have time as a couple where it's okay for him to be soft and having time to just lie there naked talking. I often find when a man loses his erection in sex, it's fun to just lay down next to each other and just talk and let him sort of dump what's on his mind for a while. And it might seem related to sex. It might not be at all. And 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 often through the the touching and being in that space together, the the erection will will start to come back, especially if there's other kinds of play involved. So um, I think it's important to validate that, you know, other things about his sexuality, enjoy his flaccid penis. You can, the, the woman can masturbate. He can finger her. There's so many things that they can do. Um, without his hard penis. And then when the hard penis shows up, you can play with that too. But it doesn't need to be the center. You know, this is what feminists call like penis-centered sex. And it seems like if they move away and explore some other areas, I think organically the, the erection will come back. I love that you said love his flaccid penis because mm. that is never said that concept is just missing. Mm. You know, I think there's not only this pressure to be sexual in certain kinds of ways, like mm. orgasm can be the only focus, mm-hmm. but also for a man to be hard all the time or anybody with a penis to be hard all the time mm-hmm. and to be like the sexual superhero, you mm-hmm. know? So that's really interesting. I love that. Taking the pressure off because isn't stress and anxiety and being self-conscious a huge part of arousal? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's just so many unconscious stories and, and things that come up. And I also find with men, it's really interesting to just touch their whole pelvis and explore it because they have fascia, like the connective tissue can be really tight in their pelvic floor. Uh, they can have scarring from from circumcision, to injuries to the pelvis. Um, maybe her boyfriend's open to having his testicles massaged or his perineum or his anus or his prostate. Um, all of these things can really help to increase blood flow to the area, help him calm down, not be so penis focused. And again, just really enjoying the, the flaccid penis, all of the parts of a man's body that are so sexy outside of just that. There's so much to them besides penis. penises. Yes, there and really is. Besides erections, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah, and sex is so much more than just that intercourse mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, you mentioned uh, anal pleasure. You write mm-hmm. about it a bit. I do. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's really empowering for looking at this whole equality piece because women get penetrated all the time and and there's so much focus on it and the, the 
sort of feminist in me said, wait a minute, but men get penetrated too. And are heterosexual men designed to be penetrated? Yes, because their prostate is sitting an inch inside of their anus and is their G spot. And, you know, again, we know that our in our culture, it's so taboo and it's associated with homosexuality. But I love to educate men and women that men have so much pleasure from their testicles, their perineum, you know, even if you don't enter their anus, just stroking near it, uh, the external and internal anal sphincter have tons of nerve endings, just like the tip of the penis and the clitoris. Um, and if the man's open to a prostate massage, this can be really, it's really good for him and can be really fun in uh, conjunction with, you know, giving oral sex or any kind of other pleasure to the pelvis. So yes, Beautiful. I'm a big advocate of it. And you're also a really big advocate and educator and healer when it comes to body connectedness and, and the connection between emotional mm -hmm. issues surrounding sex and our beliefs and how they affect us physically. And you do this wonderful body work called Body Talk. Yes. What is that? So Body Talk is essentially acknowledging that our our pasts, uh, the stories that haven't been fully resolved are sitting in our bodies. And through body talk, we're able to uncover these sort of unexpressed moments or untold stories or these belief systems from the past. And by bringing consciousness to them, we're able to release them to some extent. And then the body goes back to its innate functioning because the body is the healer. The body makes all the drugs you need up in the brain. The body can heal and repair any tissue. Um, the brain is, has this incredible plasticity. It can rewire itself. It can do all of these things. Um, but what gets in the way of that are belief systems and emotions and perceptions. And speaking of erections, I've I've worked with some men where, you know, it was several ex-girlfriends ago and they were so wounded by some something she said or some breakup or something that just really crushed their self-confidence and it's affecting their erection years later with their current partner. And just bringing consciousness to that has restored the, the erection for some men. So um, it's a, an amazing journey and I love working with, I work with a whole range of health issues, but obviously my specialty is sexuality. And I'm so passionate about being someone that women can come to that have pain with sex or recurrent bacterial vaginosis or yeast infections or um, whatever it is that's sort of plaguing them because it's it often feels really unsafe to talk to a general healthcare practitioner or body worker or alternative, you know, do you want to, are you going to talk with your acupuncturist about it? Unless they're giving you some messages that that's a safe place to talk about sexuality, you're not going to feel comfortable to open up. Sure. That makes a lot of sense. So when somebody comes to you for this kind of treatment, what is an experience like for them? Do they like lay down and do you, do you touch their bodies? Well, for the most part, I work over the phone and over Skype um, because all of this work can be done just through talking and bringing consciousness and touching different parts of the body. But if someone is in Los Angeles and they want to come for an in-person session, uh, Body Talk is based in Chinese medicine, which looks at the, the organs and the five major emotions and how those sort of play out in the body through the meridian. So there is sort of that added really delicious element of touch. And it's really, it's not massage. It's not sort of deep touch, but it's connecting with these points in the body and essentially helping to bring consciousness back to the body. So the idea is that when there is trauma in the body, our consciousness pulls back. It retreats from the area. That fight or flight response happens. Um, and if this has happened in the genitals or the pelvic floor or your feet, that then it's going to lead to problems with sexuality. And so through the touch and the talking, we're able to pull that consciousness back. And we do some tapping over the head and heart to get the brain and the heart sort of... Um, 
you know, in conjunction with the treatment. And um, yeah, but the, the biggest part is really bringing to light what is in the darkness, which again is, it might be a conversation you have with your mother about, you know, yeast infections when you were six, or it might be something you learned in your school education, you know, class, like you talk about with your story where you've just had this question that never got answered or this, this fear that was never voiced or spoken and sort of connecting the dots there often creates this aha experience in the body, which creates the healing. Mm. And does that happen at different paces or is it kind of take time and many sessions? Um, it, it depends like with anything, you know, some people are really ready to break through something and they can break through it pretty quick. Um, and, you know, a series of three sessions and, and other things take longer, you know, it depends on how long you've been wired a certain way and, and how many things are working for you or against you. I always find that someone, again, that has a long history of self-pleasuring and masturbation and, you know, they're going to have an easier time sort of discovering things with sexuality than someone's that's that's been shut down to their sexuality, even with themselves for, it's like, okay, we have a lot of years and time to sort of make up. Um, and, you know, depending on how much trauma they've had, but, um, yeah, if someone comes to me and they've just had a recent thing that's come up, it's pretty quick to, to resolve this way. That's inspiring to know that that's possible. And it relates to the porn issue too, because we were talking about mm. rewiring and, mm -hmm. if, you know, being able to, to really change the way that we see our own sexuality or to address these experiences that we may have never talked about before. Yeah. Well, I write That's about huge. this in my first book, The New Rules of Sex, that I had this, that was the the reproductive issues I was talking about in my bio as well, that I just had this recurrent bacterial vaginosis, yeast infection. I just could not get the flora in my vagina to go back to being normal flora. And at the time I was, I had healthcare through UCLA. So I had access to, you know, everything Western medicine has to offer. And then I was already in the body talk world and alternative medicine and was trying all these dietary things and all of these, you know, baking soda and coconut oil and suppositories of tea tree oil and everything. And what finally released it all was me realizing how angry I was and really getting that anger out, which goes back to women not having permission to be sexual and not having permission to be angry. And anger in Chinese medicine is the element of wood, which is the element of the boner, ironically. <laughs> and so sometimes, you know, what's keeping us from health in our sexual system is permission to be to be angry and express that. And, and, and also the healthy expression of anger in Chinese medicine is setting boundaries, is saying no and saying, I'm not going to take that anymore. I'm not going to tolerate that anymore. It's not just screaming and yelling and punching a pillow. I try that too. That didn't work for me. For me, healthy expression of anger is saying, I'm not going to let you speak to me like that anymore, or I'm hanging up the phone, or this is not going to you know, happen this way. And, and this is the power that women need to find. And it will actually immediately transform your flora. And you can save all that money on the suppositories and the supplements and everything because our bodies are really expressing our consciousness. And the, these symptoms are opportunities to heal deeper parts of ourselves. They're not our bodies failing us or, oh, I got this thing from sex. Oh, no. You know, was it did someone give me something like we're not victims in our sexuality, our systems are empowering us to evolve, you know, past our own weaknesses, essentially. Beautifully said. And I love that you mentioned that anger doesn't have to be this screaming fit because I feel like we have this false idea mm. that it's going to be us screaming at somebody or mm -hmm. to have this really loud argument, which maybe that there's a place for that, sure. Mm -hmm. But standing up for ourselves. And I remember a time when I was with some friends and we were hanging out in a lobby of a hotel and 
people were walking by us and I moved out of the way and apologized. Mm. And I wasn't in anyone's way. Mm. It was a public big hall. And my friend looked at me and said, you, you don't have to apologize for taking up space. Mm-hmm. And I thought, wow, I hadn't even thought about that before. Mm. So really standing strong in, in who we are and that giving ourselves permission thing. That's yeah. a big theme, isn't it? It really is to to have a voice. I was just speaking with someone the other day when I was in London uh, doing an interview for my new book, and she was talking about the vagina monologues and sort of this idea of women having permission to have a voice in the world and also in the bedroom. And and again, it's something we never talk about. Do we ever sit down with our girlfriends and say, do you make a lot of noise when you have sex? Like, do you worry about the neighbors? Do well, you and I probably yeah. do? Yeah, <laughs> we probably do. But but are they even have making noise to to talk about? You know, again, right. it's just something that's not even talked about. And yeah. um, and it should be because then we would normalize it. And through vocalization, I mean, there's a whole the whole line of healing, a whole modality of healing that's just based on sound. So the sounds we organically make when we're having sex, when we're giving birth, this helps to move the energy as well. And again, the opposite of healthily expressed anger is stagnant, you know, lack of sound, lack of movement, lack of boundary setting. So what, yeah, we need as women to find our voices and um, in every way. You're a, a mom now. Yes. And I'm so grateful that she has you. I think, wow, what an amazing mom I'm sure you are. How has being a mother affected your sexuality or or vice versa? Oh, wow. Well, I write about it some in my new book, The New American Family. I mostly talk about sexuality during pregnancy, which was a wild and amazing journey, especially not being in a monogamous, you know, coupling. Um, I was a free polyamorous agent at the time. Um, I've written some about sexuality post-baby. You know, the biggest surprise for me was the lack of lubrication throughout the first, I think, nine months of breastfeeding. I was like, wait, what happened to my lubrication? Like, sex was really different for a while then because with those different hormones. But I, um, you know, everything I thought to be true was I had a, a really um, amazing home birth in the water. I birthed on my side, so I didn't tear. Um, so I was having sex two weeks later, um, gently at first, you know, your cervix is still healing and your body's still sort of closing up. But it was amazing to connect with my my partner at the time in that way. And yeah, for me, sex is just, it's continued. It's been more interesting. I've heard some women say they're more sensitive after giving birth. And I think that might be true. I think I'm enjoying all the walls of my vagina a bit more um, yes. and really enjoying, yeah, as opposed to just other yeah, more specific areas. So that's been great. And yeah, I'm so excited to raise my daughter in such a sex positive family and to call myself out on on things I've been programmed to say, to call her dad out. You know, he made some comment the other day that about, oh, well, she can't kiss anyone until she's 21. And I said, okay, so I'm going to stop you right there. Like she can express love and affection. And she's already made out with the boy at the library the other day and she's <laughs> one. So, I mean, it's sexuality starts immediately and it's yeah. beautiful. And I'm really excited to watch her grow up. Amazing. Yeah. What do you wish that we were teaching our kids? What are some of the biggest messages that parents, because I think it's so scary for parents who grew up in a very sex negative home Mm -hmm. and without any education, where do they start with trying to make it a more 
positive culture. Mm. Well, I have an article about this on my website, what to talk with your kids about, about sex um, on laurenbrem.com. But I, I recommend just having lots of little conversations with it over time, not one big sit down conversation, but just answering questions as you go using physical things. You know, often when we talk, kids, they don't have anything physical to grasp it. They need a picture or they need something. So when something comes on on the television or you're in the supermarket and you pass, you know, the tampons, like everything is a teaching moment. And you say, oh, you know, women have this beautiful ability to make babies and this is how this happens. And like, you know, talking with your kids before it happens is such an important thing. Boys need to know about ejaculation before they wake up terrified, like what just came out of my penis. And as do women about, um, you know, pleasure and touching. And these things start so young. You know, nobody wants to talk about it because it's so taboo that we're touching our genitals as much as we do at such a young age that we're touching other kids' genitals that, you know, some kids don't want to put clothes on because they just love like being naked and feeling the air on their bodies and, and touching other people. So it's important to start having little conversations early and just and, – and this is what's so – what I love about the new sex education passed in one part of Canada is that they passed sex education that starts in kindergarten. And it's very age appropriate, but it's like at first it's like these are your areas that nobody can touch unless you say so. And then they start talking about consent and healthy relationships. So it's not just a penis and a vagina. It's like talking about the whole spectrum of bodies and consent and same sex and everything um, over time. We need that so much. Yes. Oh, I wish, I wish. It's, it is lovely, though, to hear that that's happening somewhere. Yes. And for parents who are, have kids who don't have access to that, knowing that they can do so at home, mm-hmm. you know, and simply catching themselves when they do, because it's natural for somebody who has a lot of shame around that to go, oh, you're not supposed to touch that, mm-hmm. you know, using or using these weird names for things mm-hmm. and, and say, calling it naughty and all of that. It's, yes. it's important to, I love the idea of answering questions because the curiosity is there mm-hmm. from like two, three years old for a lot of people. Yeah. There's so many teaching moments, especially if you're just with your kids throughout the day. I mean, in the bathroom and at the store and watching things on TV. And so you get lots of opportunities if you're really present raising your children and they're going to, they're going to ask about it. Yeah. Yeah. And it needs to be age appropriate. I mean, I also tell a story, I think in that article about coming home from middle school and this boy had said the words oral sex. And I thought, wait, I know what sex is. I know what the word oral means. How can those possibly fit together? And I went home and, and asked my mom, you know, mom, what is oral sex? And she told me and I was shocked. And then I said, do you and dad do that? And she said, yes. And I went sobbing, like running to my room. So I was like, okay, how would I do that as a parent? I would talk about it. But if she said, do you and dad do that? I would say, you know, it would probably redirect like, well, this is, you know, like, and one thing I love too is always looking to the animal world. I think if we were all still raised around animals and on farms, we would see that animals have oral sex, that animals are having sex and making babies all the time. So that's another great thing you can do with your kids is pointing out like, oh, look, those animals are having pleasure. They're hugging, they're licking, they're, look, they're making a baby or, you know, the bugs are always, you know, procreating. So um, there's lots of opportunities to do it without giving them more than they're ready for or talking about your own sex life, like maybe redirecting it to yeah. something else. I like that a lot. Yeah. And age appropriate is going to be different for different kids. So mm-hmm. knowing your kid and, yeah. you know, some are going to just mature faster and have more questions, but just yeah. and not having feeling like you need to overstate everything, you know. 
spill your whole sex life yeah. out to them, which, <laughs> which I don't know if anybody actually really needs that per se. Right. Well, this is one thing I challenge adults on a lot too. I find it really interesting to see what kind of response someone says when I say, oh, well, you know, when your parents had sex or your parents making love and some people literally go, Ugh, like I have it all the time when I'm on the phone with clients and I say, I want you to stop and look at that reaction because in the same way that we all know, especially in divorced or co-parenting, situations, the way you talk about the other parent, it the child feels that as a reflection of them. And the way as a parent you talk about yourself, the child takes that as a reflection of them. So there's something in rejecting our own parent's sexuality that we're rejecting in ourselves. I have no problems thinking about my parents having sex. I think, oh, how beautiful. And they loved each other and they had all this great pleasure. And yes, they divorced, but I'm like so glad they they had that and they had this great chemistry. And like there's no disgust in it at all for me. So I, yeah. I find it really curious to ask, to ask yourself this question and say, okay, what, because we've been conditioned to respond that way. Oh, of course. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's just, and it means like a punchline in TV shows yes. and it's just, you it's know, this big reaction. Totally. In recent years, maybe two years ago, I told my mom, I said, I don't need to know the details, but I'm just glad you both had fun making me. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> we had a good laugh about it because, and the more that I've done this work, yeah. the more open they are, you know, they've always been respectful, but it wasn't in their, you know, upbringing or way of being to be verbal about these things. So has has this work and your journey influenced your own uh, kind of family relationships and the friends you had before? Are they understanding, accepting? Of how I'm raising my daughter or the how Yeah, she... and your sex positivity, your sex, you know, your career and sexuality. Yeah, you know, I think everyone around me is pretty um, positive and comfortable with it. You know, I went to a dinner party this weekend and I walked in and someone said, oh, it's the sex lady, you know, and they all know I have a baby now. And But um, yeah, I think she's only 15 months now, so I'm sure it'll it'll keep evolving as it goes. But I think the person it's been most difficult for is probably my dad, you know, both um, writing a book about sexuality and then having a baby with a friend as opposed to within this married um, context. So, um, but again, he, you know, now my daughter's born and he loves her and he's proud that I have my own business and that I help people. So that's beautiful. Uh, yeah. You mentioned you have a new book coming out. Tell yes. us a little bit about that. So it's called The New American Family, and it's about my journey bringing my daughter into the world and deciding to have her the way that I did and not waiting for marriage and not waiting for a man on a white horse and all of that. And I interviewed lots of other families that fit into this um, you know, spectrum of non-normative family formation, and I got their stories. And that was actually my favorite part of writing the book was interviewing all of these families. There's a polyamorous family in Hawaii. There's a... a um, friends that had a baby, and um, I think they're here in LA. Um, there are same-sex couples through insemination, through surrogacy, adopted children, all these different stories. And they're really touching and beautiful. And just a reminder that the beauty that children bring, it, it, it comes however you know you are when you're ready to receive it. And it doesn't just, it's not just beautiful when it's between a man and a woman who are married. And, and I talk, as I love to do, to sort of explore taboos, the sexuality of the pregnant woman, to talk about what's happening in our culture with delaying marriage and, and the fact that we've lost 90% of our eggs by the time we're 30 as women. So what's really going on with our fertility in our 30s when you know we think we can wait till our late 30s and 
and the men are saying, oh, you know, wait and waiting to get married, but that's not really what's best for a lot of women. And so we have a lot of choices to make with how culture is changing. And I talk about that and, of course, how other cultures do it and their stories about babies. So it's a really interesting book about happiness and family and the choices that we have as women today. Beautiful. I can't wait to read it. It sounds like it's going to bring a lot of hope and affirmation to people who don't feel that they fit into kind of a that that box, you know? Yeah, That's I think important. it's for me, again, it fits in with that line of giving women permission to be who they are, to be who you are sexually, to be who you are, like to create the life you want now rather, rather than waiting to have it or paying some coach to help you, you know, fit into this box so that you can have it this one way. It's like just let it come into your life however it wants to come in. Beautiful. And tell everyone where they can just generally learn more, connect with you online. Yeah, they can connect with me at laurenbrem.com or check out The New Rules of Sex or The New American Family on amazon.com. Beautiful. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Now for a very special offer, you guys. Our beloved Dr. Megan is offering her Rekindle Desire program for only $40. That is about a 50% discount off the usual price of $79. And this is for Girl Boner listeners only for two weeks in honor of World Sexual Health Day, which took place on Sunday, September 4th. The program is a culmination of Dr. Megan's over 15 years of transforming the sex lives for women of all sexual orientations shapes, and sizes through the power of embracing and exploring their sexuality. And it includes a 60-minute self-help sex therapy audio program and a workbook. To get the discount, hop over to greatlifegreatsex.com forward slash girlboner. Do so by September 21st. Again, that's greatlifegreatsex.com forward slash girlboner. Purchase it for yourself, for your partner, for, you know, if you want to share it together. It's absolutely fabulous and a great way to not only reignite des- desire, but to learn more about yourselves and each other and just cultivate all that delicious pleasure that you deserve. For lots of more Girl Boner fun, be sure to visit augustmclaughlin.com or girlboner.org. Sign up for occasional email updates. And if you haven't yet, please subscribe to episodes on iTunes so you will never miss a beat. I hope you'll also consider leaving us a rating and a simple review while you're there. Thank you so much for listening and have a beautiful Girl Boner Embracing Week. Thank you.